Hi, I'm Lucy and welcome to the London Magazine podcast. Today we're chatting with Joelle Taylor, whose poem The Oh God features in our October-November issue. Hi, Joelle. Hello, how are you? Hi. Joelle is an award-winning poet, playwright, author and educator. She has written four collections of poetry. Her most recent, Kanto and Othered Poems, was the winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize 2021 and was named as one of the best poetry books of the year by The Telegraph, The New Statesman, The Times Literary Supplement and The White Review. She is the founder of Slambassadors UK and co-curator and host of Outspoken Live, a live poetry and performance club in residence at the Southbank Centre. So to start off, I'd love to ask Joelle for a reading of The O God and to tell us a bit more about the poem. Thank you so much. The O God. From a distance, wedding bells look like bombs dropping. Oh Lord, the sky has broken into middle-aged men. There she is, bruised to rainbow bunting. How was I to know that to light a cigarette was to light a fuse, her face white against the sudden behind her, buildings falling to their needs, birds taking back their songs, all this little black. How hello can be the end of the world, how you can fall into its oh. Where did I put my shoes? Is there a reason for a coat? Oh Lord, the butchers are climbing inside each other, chasing down ghosts, diving from high rises into the bodies of swans that frisk the air, correct the parting, the tie, tightening. Oh Lord, I'm moving into the horror of my heart, combing my hair, making appointments, searching for a wall to line books against, a view to somewhere that isn't me. Mine's a pint of father, please. I want a mirror that shows me where I went wrong. Here's me pulling apart the bird to find the source of the song. Thank you, Joelle. Thank you. That was, yeah, really amazing. And obviously, so the poem touches on divorce. And yes. was it quite a personal poem for you to write? I mean, completely. It's one of those poems that climbs out of you rather than you write. So, um, whilst this has been the most incredible year for me professionally personally it's been the most devastating and my wife and I have decided to divorce and we split up um so the poem is, a, is around that but it's also about about guilt and grief um and mine's a pint of father is me actually thinking oh god I'm just like my dad so it's pretty much and the butchers climbing inside each other um there was so much chaos and anger and rage around the divorce that um, my community all started kind of falling out with each other. You know, you know what women are like. So it was the most sort of overwhelming time, really. Um, um, but at the same, and it's an interesting, I think, point of view from from a poet or any kind of writer is how much can you write about your own life? Do you, do I have the right to write about what this feels like? Is it owning it if I do that? So I was going through all of that, and then I just couldn't write anything other than. That. I tried um, to write other stuff, but sometimes, you know, it, it actually crawls out of you, doesn't it? It has to come into the sunlight in some way. In Collections, Canto, and a lot of your other poetry, I feel you you try to give other people voice and fill silences. So was it quite a different experience then for you to write The Oh God that is something so personal and yeah. it's your voice? Yes, completely. I mean, I think, I mean, it's very perceptive you saying that. What I've n noticed, certainly, um, so my first collection, which was Woman Who Was Not There, is really about class and it's about working with young people. So the poetry is aimed at young people and it, it, it you know, its audience is 14, 15 years old, really. Um, and the second book, Songs My Enemy Taught Me, which starts with a very personal story about sexual abuse, but really then veers off into looking at um, the status of women globally and making connections that it, it, as a kind of distraction, a deflection, I think, technique. So when I got to Kanto, it was another aspect of me, but it, I wanted to talk about more about my kind of my personal experience, but there was still... They're still deflecting through narrative, through storytelling. Um, 
oh god i mean that is, that uh, you can't really i think deflect too much you know particularly with something that's so um overwhelming and raw and um life changing was it more of a discomforting experience to write than rather than cathartic um it's hard to say really like i said it it, it fell out me there wasn't it was impossible to write anything else and I was, believe me, I had commissions and I was trying to write things around class. I was trying to write things about around body. But it's very hard when you're going through that particular grief that I think a divorce is. It's like a death. Um, how, you, um, how you can think of anything else, it's so incredibly tough to do. So, Is that a big part of the writing process for you then to use your poems as a way to make sense of yes of yes. these emotions and the world absolutely i mean when i said earlier it's it's kind of do i have the right to own this and i think it is an imperative for all all of us you know that when we're sitting down and writing we are we are writing the world as we see it and we're kind of naming it giving it shape and owning these parts of it um so it's really interesting. I mean, you know, when you're a kid and you start writing, it's really not about anything but the joy of writing. And in fact, most importantly, the joy of imagination. And then as you become an adult, and if you're lucky enough to make this into your profession, you start to, you'll think about things differently, you know. So I don't think about, about writing as cathartic in the same way. And I certainly don't think about it as therapy in the same way, though it is cathartic and therapeutic. It has to have, if somebody's paying to read a book or to read, um, to attend a reading or something like that, then you have a responsibility to audience. And, and, and I mean, it'd be good to get into this, to talk about it, because like <clears throat> the, the, one of the raging battles, of course, between spoken word and page poetry, those distinctions, you know, are um, obviously contrived, but um, is the idea of readership and audience. We have different ideas about it. So the pure poets might say, I write, I don't think about the readership. I, I, I worship at the, at the poem, at the altar of the poem. I dedicate myself to that. Whereas if you've kind of developed your career and grown through the live experience and you're wor working class, you, you can't talk about poetry without talking about class because it's a very, you know, class-dominated um, form. Um, yeah, I've lost my thread a little <laughs> bit there. Veered off. What did no, I say? that's... That's really interesting because, of course... Oh, yeah, that, that we, 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 we lean forward to an audience. Yeah. You feel a responsibility, which isn't necessarily to say that... Certainly with, with um, my earlier work, I did write for the audience because they were 14. And if I'd gone in doing the Oh God or, or something like that, I would have been, you know, screamed out of school. So it's um, you write with an awareness... Poetry becomes the shape of the vessel that holds it. It has to, like water. So if you're mainly in schools or in prisons, then that's it's it's a form of communication. And does it affect then the structure of the poem as you're writing it? With your poems, there's a lot of blank space sometimes mm. between the words and scissoray. And do you write it and speak it at the same time? Yes. I mean, I try not to, but then I, um, I've just recently returned from Rome from reading T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. And when you get hold of the great poets, some of the classic poets, and you read their work out loud, it is so clearly off the mouth. It's so clearly concerned with musicality and rhythm because poetry is, 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 is loud, it's alive, and it's song in a sense, you know, to some degree. Um, so I certainly sit down and, and, and play with that. There are poems, say in Conto, in all, in all the books, particularly songs my enemy taught me, that I, I just wouldn't do on stage because I can't make them work and I'm not quite at the level of those amazing poets who will literally come to the lectern and say, don't clap and just read. Yeah, I feel like everything has to be an event and <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a class thing. It is. It's class, isn't it? Um, it's, a, you know, about um, responsibility to the audience, responsibility to the reader to make an event out of it. 
We were talking um, in the office actually the other day about when we came along to one of your events through Outspoken, oh, yeah. which you co-create. Um, it was in the summer and we were saying how much of an event it was. It's the lighting and the sound effects. It isn't just, you know, a poet going up with a piece yeah. of paper. It is yeah. an event and... Definitely, the spoken word community seems to be flourishing at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's not even just that one. So I didn't, I wasn't a founder of Outspoken. That's Anthony Axaguru, the poet. Um, but um, we have a very strong um, relationship and friendship going back years because I was the first poet he ever met when he was a kid and I introduced him to the stage. Um, but what attracted me to Outspoken when they asked me to do it is the high production values and the framing of work. It's really, really important. So it's not even that spoken word is flourishing. It's something more exciting is happening, which is that um, to use the binaries, like published poetry noticed that spoken word audiences were, were selling out venues. You know, and there's a lot of excitement around spoken word artists. So they went and they watched and they were like, wow. Okay, interesting. I can learn how to use some of that. At the same time, there was a revolution in print-on-demand publishing with Burning Eye Books who started to publish spoken word artists. Because of that, we started to really look at the page and learn from the published poets. So what we're at the moment, if you can imagine there's, there's a bridge, we're kind of meeting in this really exciting space that I think of as live poetry. So in that, you will have some very strong spoken word, but you will also have you know, um, Rob, Robin Robertson doing electric reading and absolutely electric reading. So the more, you know, they're not the um, as hand arm wavers necessarily, but the awareness of the drama of performance and the drama of poems. So you can have somebody very still, you know, like Victoria Bully, for example, set against somebody like Selena Godden you know, who's the sort of diametric opposite within that. And I think that's what people are finding exciting. In times of great, great hardship and struggle, weirdly enough, we turn to poetry. We might not call it that, you know, but we have these rhymes that we repeat to ourselves. We have these sort of, um, uh, these. Oh, I can't think of the right word, but these kind of um, mantras, which are essentially poems, you know. Um, and I think we also need community. And when you have um, a regular live event, whether that's outspoken at the South Bank or it's Bad Betty or Raise the Bar, you start to develop the same audiences coming. And they're not just going because they trust the curation. Um, they're going because of the person sitting next to them, because they're making connections. And they're seeing the event in the same way they see going to a gig going you know going to the theater or an art gallery it's become part of the cultural palette um of of a wider community a wider the working classes if you like you know um, it's which is exciting i love how you say we do seem to be at this bridge at mm. the moment between spoken and page poetry and in regards to your winning of the t.s Eliot prize this year mm. it's really interesting to take a look at that because since its inception the prize has generally been awarded to to page poets and how did you find receiving this recognition then of a collection that a lot of it is so inspired by your spoken word i mean what it's inspired by is body and that's what spoken word is it's just the you know the the willingness to um, to put the book down and let the poem inhabit the body, and and you know, tr classic spoken word is very direct. It's very direct, and it also gives answers, whereas um, poetry asks questions. So they're they're kind of related, but but different sort of forms. I spoke recently to to Glyn Maxwell. I did um, a final reading of 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 Conto in London uh, this year. And he, I said, you know, you were very brave. Thank you, all of you, for taking such a, a leap on, on, you know, the first sort of performance kind of aspect. And he said it wasn't that. It was the book. So that's really important because one of the things I've noticed is that people really do hone in on my performance. And I think 
um, of course, I'm fighting for my life. I'm on stage and I'm I'm fighting. That's how we that's how we fight. It's poetry of urgency and and you know of insistence. Um, but it can also be used to put me down. I feel it might be, it might be me. Um, I might I might be paranoid about that. But sometimes I think people talk about the performance because they don't value the writing or they, they're trying to figure out how, how on earth, good Lord, what's happened. Um, but the C.S. Elliott Prize is for, is for writing. It's not for that. But it, it did do something really important. I think all the messages on social media later, which were from my community, spoken word community, they were just thrilled at the, at the fact that they could be considered, you know, as part of a part of this um, the canon, which they are. So it's ah uh, yeah, it was an amazing, amazing act of bravery, and I think from the judges, but but yeah. And how has it been throughout the centenary year of T. S. Eliot's Wasteland? I mean, what a lucky year to win, and eh? <laughs> 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 really lucky. Um, it's been it's been incredible. There's been a lot of I've, there's been a shift in the way people um, talk to me. That's a really major part. And there's been a shift in I don't I'm I'm knocking on doors and they're opening just a fraction so I can shove a manuscript in. But you know there is now an understanding that maybe the the writing itself is something that deserves a second look, that maybe I've got more to do. Um, and it's been overwhelming in terms of the amount of busyness. But I, the poetry community is a wider thing, is so loving and caring and giving, as well as absolutely evil. Um, so but with me, they've been very sort of generous and, you know, making sure that I'm okay and making sure that I'm getting enough rest, which I'm not. But you get one year, that's it. And I know I'll have won forever, but um, I have a very big sense that, that I had 12 months to make a difference in terms of my career. And, um, yeah, it's the most amazing thing in the world. Absolutely amazing. How did it feel that was there a sense of acceptance and belonging? Because I read... Was it some of your first poetry readings were as a kind of support act on the punk scene? Your, yes. Your way yes, in yes, was yes. through the punk scene. And it just feels as if you've, in your in your past, that you've kind of been going against the traditional gatekeepers of poetry. You've wanted That's to it. find your own way That's it. to it. And through your work with Slambassadors, mm. it's, it's not the traditional ways of going to university, studying English lit. Yeah. It's these other roots in, which is really inspiring. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, really, um, spoken word being the poetry of the marginalised, being the poetry, um, uh, yeah, of insistence, like I said, poetry of emergency, you, you, you can't really publish spoken word and have it have the same effect. It doesn't have the same impact as somebody performing it, particularly if it's very direct. So... You know, I've never submitted to a magazine. Oh, Papa, I did you guys, but you asked me to. <laughs> we can so, knock it. Yeah. <laughs> but but normally, I mean, I've never done it. And even now, I, I just don't have the courage. But I spend my life trying to persuade people to have that courage, you know. But what I did have the courage to do was was um, build the stage that I performed on, like literally. Um, and that is a mark of, of all the spoken word artists of that age. So Steve Tazane, Patience, Agbar B, Paul Lyles, <clears throat> all people you, you you know who are at some. They set up these clubs, and these clubs became our our literary magazines. You know, um, so I do think it's important to bypass literary gatekeepers because we know that it's not a representative and diverse. Not, you know, narratives that are are published widely in poetry. There's still quite a, you know, there's still a very um, heavily weighted class, for example, and heavily weighted in terms of race. So I think, like, um, it, by any means possible, set up your own, um, set up your own outlets, your own platforms, set up a movement, you know, because that's where it all comes from. It really does, which isn't to disparage 
any of the traditional things at all. You know, because of course we all want to be published by the big presses and we want to have that kind of recognition and we want to, um, you know, um, lecture at the big universities, all of that kind of thing, of course. But there's also of equal value this other scene. And I like how underground it is because it's it's dangerous, you know. Mm. <laughs> i just leave that <laughs> sentence there. It's very dangerous. <laughs> The Underground Poetry Club. (laughs) (laughs) Well, moving on, we would love to hear some poems from Kanto. Yeah, sure. The premise of the book is that a series of vitrines start to appear across London, which are kind of glass cases in museums or in art galleries. And inside each one of these vitrines is something I remember from my wider LGBT history, something I was either physically present at or it was around during my... um, my beardless youth in the late 80s and 90s, um, when there was a, was a time of great oppression against LGBT people, leading to, you know, most of us being exiled from our families and our communities and eventually the feeling of being exiled from our own bodies. As well as, as that, it also brought us together as a community. So inside one of these vitrines, which is a snow globe, is an entire dyke bar called the Maryville. Um, And I'm going to read the entrance for that. Scene one. Exterior. Night. A main road in London. LX1. Street lamps watch a woman pass and text each other. FX1. The sound of a door opening into a chest cavity. A lone woman walks briskly, head down, holding invisible bouquets. Ahead of her is a hunched building with its hands in its pockets, bracketed by gossiping fairy lights. LX2. A neon sign flashes its pink dilate. Maryville, the sign says. The woman pushes open the door and enters her own body. At the bar, she orders a drink, and when it arrives, it is her breath. Music is playing. It is the sound of someone being listened to. She notices that she is sitting at every table. When the woman asks her to dance, the whole of the past stands up to dance with her. Her classmates, her teachers, the manager of the shop she worked in over Christmas, the newspaper proprietor, the street she grew up on, an adjacent town, her parents and grandparents, the kid who waited for her after school. The song ends, the world opens, Venus rises. So that's sort of the entrance poem in, into the into the Maryville, and I write them as stage directions, which um, if there are any lesbians out there, I'm sure there's three, if there are any lesbians out there, they will recognise this feeling of, of going through life being narrated, often by strange, um, just guys who walk past. And it's a really weird thing that often happens with us. Um, and people keep reporting to me now, because I talk about it a lot, so I get messages around it. So you're walking down the street and some strange man will just literally walk past you and in quite a mild way will say, lesbian, and carry on walking. <laughs> like, literally, it happens to us all the time. You know, like Vauxhall drive, what, 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 what they call Volkswagen drivers beep, beep at each other. It's a, it's a similar kind of thing that goes on. Or like collecting sort of football stickers, lesbian homosexual I don't know so it's a really strange thing and I wanted to kind of create a form that allowed you to understand what it's like to feel all the time as though being narrated um but then we go into the Maryville um so this is called Psalm oh Maryville song of loose shirt you button down boy you thick rod of irony oh Maryville you sawn off mini skirt, you tights torn into choir. Oh Maryville, oh swagger, oh keychain and denim, I am plural. Oh Maryville, we dress as our greatest fears, we dress as ourselves. Oh Maryville, the etymology of dyke, 
So many holes to fill. I knew your mother. Saw them lower her body into her body. Saw how she became cenotaph. The neighbourhood children left flowers at Oh, Maryville, I remember your sister, how antelope she was, how she froze when she heard the first roar, how she fell into the O of the roar. Oh, Maryville, the antelopes are eating the antelopes. Oh, my Maryville, forgive us their trespasses. Let us walk alone at night and let the night not follow us. Let us drink too much and awaken in each other's mouths. Let us be ugly, let us unwash, let us language. Our mouths are filled with men, lying, dancing. Let us pass the half-smoked cigarette. Oh, Maryville, let us fatten. Let us leave our faces on the back seat of night buses. Let someone take a photograph, not of us, but because of us. Let our limbs grow wild, our hair retreat, our hormonal Seas, let our breasts, let them, let us inherit each other's teeth. Oh, Maryville, keep us alive this death, keep us from prayer, deliver us from ego, for thine other body, the birthing and the burning, forever and ever. Are you a man? So that's kind of, um, I don't know what to say about that really. Um, but I guess for me, these. Um, the dyke bar was a sacred space and a holy space. Um, and as I was reading that, I noticed, of course, I've taken a line from this, which has gone into the O oh God. So I guess we should talk about why I keep yeah. saying O oh all the time. Um, it's, it means woman to me. It means connus and it means womb and it means portal and, you know, yeah. And it's the, the shape the mouth makes in horror and it's the shape the mouth makes as a sex doll. So it's a kind of, it's the monstrous feminine as well mixed together. Also, it's just really nice to say, oh, because when you take it off the page, it can become a kind of halo as well. So it's making things, the filthy things, holy. And in the collection, so, so it's a recounting, really, as you mentioned, of the loss of face-to-face -face meetings in, yeah. in gay clubs and now the more divisive nature of the internet where we all seem to be living most of our lives mm. these days. Is the collection a rallying cry to try to bring a sense of unity back? Yes, yes, 100%. That was the... Well, there were a couple of instincts for writing it, but that was a major one as well. And it's what I talk about when I'm doing the performances and readings from the stage. Um, but... Uh, I did have a very skewed idea of what was really going on because I was getting most of my information from Twitter, um, which is a, a really angry animal, a very angry animal, and things were looking very, very bleak, and I thought, oh, God, they're going to hate me because lesbians, and it's true, lesbians are thought of as absolutely the lowest of the low at the moment, in contrast to the 90s when we had our own TV channel. Channel Four Dyke TV. We had um, we were really fated in the in the mainstream press as well. It's, it's really strange how it's just flipped. Um, but when I started doing the live shows, the first thing I noticed is that everybody's turning up. So a lot of um, LGBT from my age, but not just lesbians. There's gay men. There's trans people turning up. There's non-binary people, and then it become. I noticed it was getting more intergenerational as well. So what's happening? Well, I did one event, which was amazing, at um, Waterstones in Gower Street. And um, in the Q&A afterwards, somebody asked me a question. Um, but one of the elder butchers at the front of the audience turned around and started answering this young non-binary person. Um, and then they just started talking to each other. And then somebody else joined in. And suddenly we had a situation where people who are supposed to be mortal enemies online were literally make, being human and, and trying. The love was incredible, particularly from the elder butchers who are more of the mothers of the scene. I know we look like your granddads, but we're more very, very maternal nature because we want to take care of, but that's our, that's our ceremonial office, that's what we do. We take care of the room in the same way the ceremonial office of, for gay men is the drag queen. We, we have the butch. And, you know, um, 
So I have great hopes. And there's also, uh, there's been a, a plan on, um, on Instagram, which has raised enough money by people spending £25 each to buy a whole gay bar. The Joiners Arms have done it. And they've managed to raise enough money. So there is a real feeling that to save the community, we do need to come back in the same spaces. And I think that goes for absolutely every community because the internet enhances difference and real life enhances similarities or, you know, communalities, if you like. Is it true there's just one lesbian bar left in the whole of London? I thought you were going to say just one lesbian. I thought, <laughs> yes, it's me. <laughs> yes, it's, it's absolutely true and it's owned by a, a gay bar, a male bar. Um, so, I mean, I feel there's a really interesting movement of young um, dykes who are calling themselves the, the descendants of the rebel dykes, which was our generation. And they're really fascinated by all the old photographs of what we were doing and all the... There's an amazing film called Rebel Dykes has come out, which is a documentary covering that period in time. And it's inspiring them to try and set up spaces again, you know. So I think um, with a bit of luck, more spaces will start to reopen. Um you know, it's so important. It's so important to have distinct spaces. I mean, there's market forces for all of it, uh, you know, because once you get more integrated within society, you don't actually need these underground spaces in the same way you used to because, you know, there's a chance I can go to the local bar and nobody's going to throw a pint glass at me now, you know. But I do feel that everybody needs a space they belong. Definitely, and I, I think face-to-face... As you said before, it, it lowers the temperature a bit once yeah. you're talking to someone face to face and it takes that element of hostility away. I think so. And also it might tap in again to this revolutionary spirit that was in the mm. 80s. It, yeah, exactly. And I really do. I, I feel we need that spirit now because whilst, um, you know, I can go into most schools now and Nobody really, there's no violence from the kids, there's no ridicule, nothing. So things are so much better. I feel things are getting so much worse and I'm not the only one. You know, as the elders within the, the, the community, we can see it happening. We see what's happening in Chechnya. It's horrific. We can see Hungary. We can see that over three quarters of Poland are an LGBT free zone. I mean, 69 countries, it's illegal to be LGBT. In 42, it's illegal just to be lesbian. And in 11, it's the death sentence. And it's getting closer and closer. So they're not necessarily now just spaces like in parts of Africa and parts of the Middle East. It's coming across Europe. Russia is a bloody awful place to be, you know, LGBT as well. And I think um, there are elements that are being emboldened by our fighting we're not seeing what's going to happen we've got really cozy comfy but we know you know that um, the new figures came out and i think homophobic and transphobic attacks had tripled in the space of a year don't quote me on that just look look into the research yourselves um but it's a marked difference there's a marked difference um and it's partly of course because of um because of the fighting we're doing in the 80s then was it quite London-centric, this feeling of unity for the gay community? Because you grew up, was it Lancashire? Yeah, in Lancashire, I agree. Yeah, growing up, in. did you did you feel visible, you know, with your identity? While Horribly you visible. Before, <laughs> before coming to London, how? Mm, yeah, no, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a sense of a gay scene. I mean, I was part of the punk scene, which was the most left-wing of, of the sort of youth subcultures. So I did a lot of my education was through that and through feminism, through reading Spare Rib. So I was connected via reading, which we all were then because there was no Wi-Fi or anything like that. Um, so we all connected through magazines and through reading books. Uh, but the centre of the, the, the communities were the cities. So there was London, of course, but Manchester, Birmingham, all the big cities um, had this kind of influx. I call it the great migration of the gays because we all had to leave our homes. You know, we had to home in to a place that allowed us space. And it wasn't just that we were running to kind of get sanctuary. We were running because of libido, 
equally. That's a great motivator, you know. So, um, you know, uh, and there was a time of unity between gay men and lesbians. So the Bell was a, in the 80s was an absolutely legendary bar where people like Jimmy Somerville went and, you know, all the big sort of punk pop stars of the day. Um, and activism was a part of our culture. So artivism was a huge part of it. That's why you had Bronsky beats songs or political songs but reaching number one you know we had that kind of that kind of vibe and we had to stay together because the AIDS pandemic had massacred our gay men and all of us were terrified and in a similar way to what we've just been through you know when you didn't know how the pandemic was spread you remember that fear we didn't know how AIDS was spread so our gay men were not just dying they were absolutely rejected and exiled and kicked out and it was down to the lesbians, Butch Dykes, um, gave blood. They were the only ones at that time. So this is one of our kind of folk stories, you know. I think, um, I think, I think there's. I'm, I feel positive that the the spirit of rebellion beats hard in our young people, and I feel that once we get together and iron out a few, you know, distractions, the arguments that we will be able to start developing new kinds of artworks and, and protect ourselves a little bit as well. And we've heard about the Maryville in, in your poems and touching on bringing everyone back together. You've recently performed those sections up in Liverpool and you yes. made you know a night of it. You There was clubbing yeah. and drag kings. And do you have any more plans for adaptations? Yes, I do. So I've been working with the director Rob Watt and the designer Bethany Wells since, um, well, really 2018 when I was commissioned to write the set of cantos, which is called Canto, that's where the name of the book comes from, which is just memoir, cantos around my life story. And um, they originally set it, I wrote it for Apples and Snakes. We were having a 35th anniversary at the time and put on a huge happening called uh, Rallying Cry. And um, they commissioned me to write a 15-minute piece, basically. And I wrote Kanto. And they staged it inside um, uh, a boxing ring roped off with barbed wire. And I'm in just in a pair of shorts and a vest. And I slowly get dressed up into my three-piece suit throughout the performance. Well, we've been working and working and working on it to develop it. And finally, we've got together a full stage play. Um, we did a scratch of it November last year at the Albany to develop it. And we... Um, have been working on, in conversation with various partners to see where we're having it on. Um, there's a there's a backlog in theatre shows at the moment because of the pandemic. So it's taking longer than we'd like to get it out on the road, but it, fingers crossed it will be happening next year. And I think it's vital. And, and I don't mean that in a narcissistic way. My play is vital. I mean... It's, there's never been a lesbian spectacular, and that's what it is. It's um, it's very visual, it's got the same high production values that Outspoken have, a lot of flashing lights. I want trapeze in as the butchers die, they, they can rise out of their bodies. We have the poetry, we've got, we've got, in fact I call it Kanto, the musical, much to Rob Watt's horror each time, because I want, in those vitrines, I want some DJs, I want a lot of music. Because that, that's a real connecting force um, within the community, but also with audiences. And the idea is we, we do, uh, the, the stage version tells a sort of condensed version of the Maryville bar and what happened that night. Um, we'd have to come, I don't want to spoil it. <laughs> Something happens that night that changes everything. Um, and then afterwards, it turns into the Maryville bar and the audience comes in and they have drinks and it's they can sit with us and we can talk because we want to encourage conversation and once a week it turns into a rave a full-on rave um again it's about just celebrating Derek jarman who's a, a filmmaker writer said the world was ending and it was time to dance and that's what i feel um i feel like with kanto the world feels very uncertain and it's time for us to dance and come together and experience that shared experience shared joy to have this space and almost reclaim it in a way then how does that make you feel does it make you feel nostalgic for your past days oh absolutely 
Absolutely. Um, but I mean, you know, I, I'm not, I don't believe that, and gay culture is very different. Somebody really explained this to me. Straight people, um, they have a real um, age is very, very important because it's about reproduction. But if you're, you know, if you're, you're queer, for want of a better word, um, you often, you know, most of us don't have that thought in our head about reproduction. So we don't have these kind of ages that you go through. Ah, that was my 20s when I was clubbing. In my 30s, I was having dinner in my 40s. And now I go to the opera. You know, it's not like that. And so there are, I, like I've recently gone out to a few bars and clubs. It's mainly that I, I don't really want to spend all night yeah, clubbing. But, <laughs> but, I, but so I'm bringing the club to me, <laughs> bringing, <laughs> but to, you know, to have that sort of stage show. And it's, I'm very nostalgic about that time, and, but I feel very hopeful about what a new generation is going to create between them. And in the preface, you, you said the collection was to fill in these silences. Mm. And I suppose, you know, Night at the Maryville, that, that sounds like it would definitely... Yeah. It would be a very loud <laughs> a night indeed. Um, it, yeah, and um, I, it's an honouring of butch women as well, who are the most ridiculed, I think. And yeah, as I talk about in the book, there are lots of horrible things that happen to us um, that don't seem to get the press at all, you know. And how was it then having these things at the front of your mind when you were writing it? Was was it quite like an excavation of the soul for you to write it? Were there some really mm. troubling parts of it? Yeah, but if you think I've been experiencing this my whole life or my whole, you know, um, adult life. So these things are inside us. These stories are inside us. It's not like I'm suddenly opening a door and going into the room. The room door is open all the time. And um, so whilst there's, I think all poetry is excavation of some kind, we're all archaeologists, aren't we, really? Um, digging to see what we can find under there. Um, and also I like working with archives. And because of the pandemic, I was, I was kind of halted in that. So that the only library I had real access to was myself and my own memories. So there is like a, a real sense of that. Um, reminds me of a conversation I've just had with someone in Rome about trigger warnings and um, you know which is I, I'm sure you're all aware of uh, in live performance sometimes before you go on they give a trigger warning what after, happens in poetry is that um, well okay with me is that you'll be on a part of a, a wider bill say headlining but um, you're supposed to give a trigger warning as you do a reading, and I, I just don't want to do that. I think trigger warnings should be on, be on the tickets be before you buy the damn thing, you know, not have to stand up in front of everyone and declare that you're triggered <laughs> by something this person's about to say. Um, yeah, sorry, I've, I've veered off to my favourite subject. <laughs> I'd love us all to hear a bit more about Slambassadors. That was... Um, um, administered by the Poetry Society. They were asked to come up with um, a poetry competition they, um, by the Mayor of London. And they, um, or we, all got together and thought this new thing we'd heard about in the States where people were lining up to get into events called Slam Poetry. We'd try it out. And literally, in the first press releases, we had to write all the time an explanation of what Slam is. And it wasn't, it wasn't well received. Like, um, I won't, the, some broadsheets were racist. Yeah, it's not even borderline racist, just actually racist. One of the quotes was, your car radios will be safe tonight. Joel Taylor is la 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 la. And, you know, there was an, an uh, which is interesting in itself, because what about po slam poetry says that the pe poets are going to be black anyway, but there's a real there's a real sort of conflation of it with hip-hop, I think, and a real conflation of those sorts of things. Um, it was an amazing experience to to be part of. We had no idea how successful it would be, or I certainly didn't. Did I? In the very first slams, just the sense of... It brought the football match to the poem... And it brought the mums and the dads and then it brought their mates and then suddenly it brought everybody because 
they were aware as poetry as spectacle. Poetry as community, the audience voting, which is very brutal. My original slams I did in City Hall in the London Assembly Rooms, which is basically a gladiatorial ring and I'd throw children into it. <laughs> Some of whom have grown up to be Jay Bernard and Kayo Chingonyi and Anthony and Exaguru, Hussein Manoa. So, you know, and so they survived the experience because the only way to survive that gladiatorial experience is backstage. And so one of the things that I didn't expect to happen, which is the most important thing to happen, was... Um, all the poets started, the young slammers started to connect with one another and to network and become friends because they were bound together in the face of abject terror, you know, of these audiences who had like, um, what do you call them, cannons and streamers and big banners and stamping and shouting, you know, <laughs> all very supportive. Nobody was like, everybody, you know, everybody came off that stage absolutely elevated and just, wow. What was that experience? Because you're focusing energy into us, often into one kid. So the whole space is looking at some 13-year-old who's probably been ex permanently excluded from school or has had some awful experience. And for the first time in his or her or their lives, an entire room has shut up and listened for three minutes to what they have to say and then absolutely goes crazy at the end of it. You know, it's, so it's a real incredible positive experience. And during that time in London, there were a lot of postcode wars the, and our youth, it was in the papers all the time. There was a lot of stabbings, in particular a lot of gang stuff because, you know, that's how you survive when you're impoverished in the city. Um, and Slam just harnessed into all of that. It's, a, it's its own beast. It was an incredible experience and the greatest honour of my life to, to lead that for 18 years. But um, but there comes a time when it's it's better for the form itself to let somebody new in, you know. Um, and I'm excited to see what's going to happen in the future with youth youth slam. To put you on the spot slightly, can you remember your first performance? Do you know what? Um, my very first performance I hid from, um, and I was I was in Accrington. And I'd put, I'd answered, I'd answered an advert in the paper for an open mic, and um, <laughs> oh god, I must have had such courage. And they came round to the house to pick me up to take me, and I hid under the table, <laughs> refused to come, and that went on for quite a while. Another performance, I told, I stood at the door and told people it had been cancelled. <laughs> it hadn't. It took me a long, 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 long time. Um, so the one I remember the most is when I supported the Pogues. And I can't remember what poems I did or anything, you know, but um, I just remember it's the first time I'd been on a big stage. I was shaking from head to foot. I'd spent six weeks putting my makeup on, you know, um, and we didn't have things like iPads then, so my papers were like <laughs> my knees. And I was probably on stage for six minutes. And that's all it took to change my life. So I knew with some ambassadors that three minutes can absolutely transform someone's experience of the world, you know. And it's I've never personally experienced it harming someone in the sense that they go off and go, oh my God, because Slam gives equal responsibility to the audience as it does to the performer. And we hold each other, you know. Um, in adult slam, we get a bit confused and think it's about who wins. <laughs> you know, in youth slam, it's literally about the voices of the marginalised and and giving... It's not about giving them voice, it's about us shutting up and listening, you know, for a minute. And, um, it, yeah, like I say, it's the greatest privilege. Do you still get those butterflies just as about oh, gosh. time you go on stage? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm very suspicious of people who aren't nervous, really. Um, because it, what you're feeling is, is um, it's butterflies. It's butterflies getting excited, getting faster and faster and faster and faster, and all different colours. And it's a chaos of butterflies in your belly because they know at any minute you're going to open your mouth and they're going to be able to escape. So that's the process I go through in my head, is I'm not having a, a nervous breakdown. I'm about to let the butterflies go out of my mouth and go and pollinate things. We'll do whatever butterflies do. 
<laughs> and with the young people then who take part yeah. in Slambassadors, do they need a lot of encouragement or mm. do they feel that, you know, they want to get up and there and speak? Oh, yeah. Though? Yeah, yeah. Some, I mean, uh, Slambassadors as a programme is, is still active with the Poetry Society, but not running as a, as a championship. I don't think anymore I could be wrong. Um, but if you want to find out about it, do go to poetrysociety.org.uk and all the info's there. Um, I have had to really persuade people a few times. Um, I'm very persuasive. I've used boiled sweets, I've used money, <laughs> everything. Um, I have um, persuaded people, but there are some who are just like, it's their dream. Absolute dream to do it. It doesn't mean to say they're any less nervous. There's a, there's a myth about about extroverts being the best performers. They're not at all. I watch extroverts crumble every day. And it's the quiet ones you've got to watch out for all the time, those little quiet people. Um, dominate. Look at Kyo Chingonyi, the most extraordinary, extraordinary reader of his work. I hesitate to call him a performer, but like, you know... Um, yeah, there's a, a moment where you watch him and you know he's where he belongs when he's at that microphone, as well as, you know, editing hit books and writing his own yeah. award-winning poetry collections, you know. <clears throat> yeah. Do you feel then this role that you've held at certain points as being a, a mentor has come back in, into your own work and shaped your own work? Yes, uh, that's very perceptive. Absolutely, because um, the mentoring process or the education process, it's it's not it's not linear. It's a circle, um, and the clearest example is in 2017. Um, Antonin Aksaguru just said, um, "Let me publish your next collection," and that changed my life. I was able to then move on from ambassadors and dedicate myself into writing, and um, doing the touring around the world, which is a life's dream um but that was literally him repaying me for having been the person who gave him his first gigs and his first workshops and being the first person to mentor him and even with Kanto I mean um Jay very kindly offered um to do a final sweep on it so I sent Jay and got some brilliant Jay Bernard got some amazing comments about what I could do to make it better, which obviously I ignored. <laughs> I didn't. Um, you know, so there is a sense that um, that it's it's symbiotic. Mentoring is symbiotic. And it's not about repaying necessarily. It's just we're all learning continually of one another. Um, and I'm very proud of, you can probably tell, very proud of that generation because they fought very, 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 very very hard um, to develop their craft and to develop a sense of community and to set up events and to create the, the, this world we, we uh, benefit from now. I'm really proud of them. And what's next for Joelle? Do you have more collections planned? Or? Well, yeah, hope, I'm hopefully going to have some very good news in a couple of days. I've written a novel called The Night Alphabet, which is a series of interconnected stories about a heavily tattooed woman running into a shop in Hackney to get one more tattoo, which is a line that links all the other tattoos. And as they're doing it, she tells the story of each of their tattoos. Um, so I'm doing that. And um, then the next thing is full on with Kanto, the musical. I'll stop calling it that eventually. <laughs> but with doing that, and I'm also looking at, um, I've been commissioned to write my memoirs as well. I just have to try and remember any of it. You seem so busy all the time with jetting around and so many projects. How do you juggle everything? Do you know, um, poetry doesn't pay much, does it? So it, th there is a necessity, but it's also in my personality. I find, you know, the, the dream is to find balance. And for me, it's quite a simple formula, which is write, um, rehearse, perform. And that goes for like workshops as well and masterclasses and and stuff. So I mean, at the moment I'm in a, a, a perform period where I'm I'm on the road with Kanto. I've just finished a write period because I've been writing the Night Alphabet, um, and I don't know. It's just just so interesting. I'm a footballer. 
You know, I, I love the work I do. And imagine getting paid to travel the world and talk about yourself. Come on. <laughs> I'll do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we'd really like now to move on to the part of the podcast where we try to answer some of our listeners' literary dilemmas. Okay. So writing and getting a break into publishing can seem really overwhelming and also isolating. So we wanted to reach out in the hope of creating a space for our listeners to voice their dilemmas and ask for advice from someone who's been there, done it. Um, so I'll read a dilemma. It's only a short one mm-hmm. this week. It's been sent in anonymously and we'd love to ask you to give it a ponder okay. and some wise words. Um, so career progression is diabolical and it can be difficult to find community. Yeah, I mean, collectivity mm. is the antidote to cultural fascism, isn't it? It's the way that it's the most democratic way of developing our art and like I said earlier you can't talk about poetry without talking about class and race and you know gender and all of these things um so one of the uh, if you want to contact there are good organizations you can contact first of all like spread the word but also there's creative futures um and I'm hosting it the week weekend creative future writers awards and it's a competition for underrepresented writers um so you can attend those kinds of events there's an open day on sunday in which they invite loads of agents and publishers to show you how you you know get to the next level how i did it though is um by setting up a night it's that simple. Just go to your local pub or to the library. It's better, I think, the pub because you'll get more of an audience. Go to the pub and set up something really small and say to yourself, if I get 30 people, that's incredible. And then you set up an open mic. And open mics are it's how we all begin. You know, I often talk about poetry being the last free art or spoken word being because... No other art form has this idea of the open mic. You don't go to opera and someone from the local ends gets up and does a quick aria before the actual opera begins, do you? But you very common to start a proper a poetry show with the open mic. So set up a local open mic and then see who's got books coming out and write them messages. So, you know, knowing, say, if you saw I got Kanto out and say you wanted to set something up in Brighton, that's two things that are attractive to me or or London. You know, you could say, right, Joe, I can give you 30 people that all buy a book, um, can't really pay you any money. Would you do it? You know, and eventually people, more known poets will come along and you'll start to, they'll be, you start to know each other. That's how it all works. You start to know each other. And within your open mic crew, you'll find the same poets coming every week or every month to perform there. And again, you're united in the face of terror. And you're united in the sense of the shared joy of the possibilities of poetry. And then you defi- find a little group within that. You'll hear it when you're watching people. You'll be like, oh, she's a bit like me. Oh, he's interesting. I wonder, what, I wonder if they do something with me. And then once you've got that, you've got a little collective group where perhaps you kind of work with one another and feedback. In fact, I've got a thing online. You could even do it online if you can't get around. Um, I, I set up um, a feedback thing called The Circle, which is women only, um, because women tend to have a lot less self-confidence in this kind of stuff. You could set up something online like that and have a regular feedback circle, and it has massive impact in terms of self-confidence, but in terms of the work increasing, mm. you know, the, the developing rather increasing, the work developing and becoming stronger. So it, it's in your hands. Don't try and join something that doesn't want you, you know, and I know that's a brutal thing. But you're enough. You are enough and there are people like you everywhere. And the, when you come together, every organisation you see that you, re, that you look up to now and which you were part of started the same way. A couple of mates trying to figure out how to answer a difficult question. That's great advice, Joel, to end on. And it's been a real treat to have a chat with oh, you today. It's been Thank lot you fun. so much. And Thank you. We're delighted to have published you. Um, the Oh God yeah, is available to read on our website and in our latest issue, which is available to buy online also. You can find us on Instagram at The London Magazine, on Twitter at The London Mag, and on Facebook it's The London Magazine. Thank you again. Thank you very, Joelle. very much. It's, Thank been, you. it's been really lovely. Thanks. Thank you.